0: We on? Alrighty then. Okay, excellent. Please open your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to close out the chapter um, and really close out a whole section of the letter this morning, God willing. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 11 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Lord God, as we study your word, as we study this passage, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law, that you would um, grant faith, that you would draw men to yourself. Help us to grasp the mystery of godliness. Help us to grasp the importance of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to look at three verses, and really there's three main points laid out in them. But by way of sort of setting the context of where we are, we're just closing out the, the, the middle chapter of, of 1 Timothy. And in the first three chapters, we've seen in chapter 1, Paul's reason for leaving Timothy in Ephesus. Um, He says that quite clearly in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And really, all of chapter 1 is devoted to unpacking this importance of sound teaching as opposed to novel teaching. There's a rise of false, novel, controversial teachings in the church. And Paul wants Timothy to, to stop it. And he also wants to make it clear that this isn't just some high fluting esoteric concern, but it intersects with godliness and love. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, the aim of this charge, of controlling the teaching in the church, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And, and really, the rest of the chapter is working this out. And, and chapter 2 then turns to church order and, and the way the church gathers together with prayer for all peoples. Because the gospel is for all peoples. Um, with the men praying with holy hands, the women um, adorning themselves in, in appropriate apparel, with godly leadership, spiritually qualified leadership, um, leading the church. And that's what we've seen, is, is this concern of the, the church coming together and how it functions when it comes together. And, and this theme of church life sort of comes to a head and a pinnacle here in our passage. Where Paul really tells us his reason for writing. You want to know the pulse, the heartbeat of 1 Timothy. This is the passage. The title of our message this morning is Living and Singing in the Family of God. Living and Singing in the Family of God. And so we're going to look at this verse by verse, three points. First, we see Paul's fierce concern for the church. Paul's fierce concern for the church. And he just lays it out there in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to conduct, ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is in Macedonia, and Paul is in Ephesus. And Paul has left him there to do a function. When he left them, the function was to control teaching. And now Paul hopes and plans to return. But he's so concerned for the church at Ephesus, he's so passionate about them that that's not good enough. What if he's delayed? What if he doesn't return in time? The content that he has to communicate, the things that he wants done are of such a priority that he needs to write this letter. Really, we have First Timothy as a book of the Bible because Paul was so concerned about the church. Concerned enough that he longed to see them face to face and concerned enough that in the event that he wasn't able to make it, he he had to communicate this information to them. Um, We see his concern really in in two aspects. First, a jealous care. A jealous care. There's there's a jealousy that's good and there's a a jealousy that's bad. God is jealous for his people. and, And Paul is jealous for the church. We've seen that already in his Jealous, concerned that the church stay doctrinally sound, that the church stay genuinely loving, living out clear consciences. Paul is jealous for the church. He's passionate about the church. In fact, when he lists his sufferings in 2nd Corinthians, and you don't need to turn there, but he lists his sufferings. I want you to see what's at the top of the list in 2 Corinthians 11, defending his apostleship there against the so-called super apostles at Corinth. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toils and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then verse 28. And apart from these other things, there is the daily pressure on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Do you get that? This is a man who's been whipped, beaten, imprisoned, stoned, constantly in danger, constantly under attack. As you read through the book of Acts, there are mobs of Jews who follow him from city to city to persecute him. And he says aside from all of that, there's his concern for the church. I mean, get the Apostle Paul's heart for the local church that 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 was that was what burdened him the most that was what was most on his heart was the possibility that God's people in a particular church might not be doing well they might be struggling false teaching might be present and it just broke him and this is the Lord's heart for his church and it should be our heart in fact the letter to First Timothy isn't going to make a whole lot of sense unless you start to click with this passion for the local church. I mean, after all, what do we care about the qualifications of this, that, and the other? Unless you buy into the priority of the local church in God's redemptive plan. Unless you understand it as where we live out our faith and practice. Unless you see it as the glimmering bride of Christ. First Timothy, and much of Paul's ministry isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. And we, we live in a culture that's individualistic, where, where people don't like commitment, where people often will say, well, it's just me and the Lord. I got my own personal relationship with Jesus, and there's truth to that. But we really have a corporate relationship with Jesus. We have a corporate unity as as God's people, as a local church. And this is what was heavy on the Apostle Part's heart. His jealous concern for the church. And not just a jealous concern for the church, but a passionate love. Turn, turn to Acts 20. This is the last time that he met with the leaders in Ephesus. We read this a few weeks ago, but it's, it's helpful to see it again. In fact, in, we'll be looking in Acts 20 and Acts 19 at the founding of the church at Ephesus today. And... But here, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem where he knows that he will be arrested. He knows that he'll be arrested and imprisoned. And on his way to Jerusalem, he stops at Miletus. And he calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he wants to talk to them. And I just want to read that passage in Acts 20, verse 17 and following. Now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day until I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching in public and from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, "'not sparing the flock, "'and from among your own selves "'will rise men speaking twisted things "'to draw away the disciples after them. "'Therefore, be alert. "'Remember that for three years "'I did not cease night or day "'to admonish everyone with tears. "'Now I commend you to God "'and to the word of his grace, "'which is able to build you up "'and give you the inheritance "'among all who are sanctified. "'I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel.' yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said himself, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed to them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. They would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This man loved this church. You get that night and day over three years, teaching them, exhorting them with tears. This is a man who loved the church. He's, he's concerned for the church's purity, and he loved these people, and they loved him. And this, this, again, is the important relationship in the local church, this concern and love for the body of Christ, and it oozes out of Paul and his pen. And it's God's heart for the church, and it should be our heart for the church. A fierce concern for the local church. Well, turning back to uh, 1 Timothy, let's move on to our second point. Fitting conduct in the church. Fitting conduct in the church. So after expressing to Timothy the hopes to come, but in case he didn't come, he's, he's got this instruction for them. He sort of summarizes it by saying I wrote this so that one may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that word for ought to behave really in the Greek is it is necessary to conduct oneself. The words for living, for walking about, your day-to-day conduct. And so what he's saying is there's a, there's a necessary way, it is necessary for us to live our lives in the church. Um, so after a concern for the church, here's what appropriate conduct in the church looks like. That, that's really the picture here. And we've already seen some of this. There's an appropriate doctrine Chapter one. There's, there's proper prayer. Chapter two. Proper gender relations. Chapter two. Proper spiritual leadership. Chapter three. We've already seen some of this. That these things of this passage refer to the whole letter of First Timothy. I've written these things to inform you how to appropriately conduct yourself in the church of God. And again, this builds upon the first point because who cares about how to appropriately conduct themselves in something they don't care about? So first, you've got to love the church, and then, being passionate about the church, you're going to care how to conduct yourself. And Paul uses two metaphors for the local church. The first, as God's own household. I think this is wonderful. In fact, this is where part of the title comes from. The living, from living and singing, comes from this conduct, this living your life. And God's own household is, sets up the family of God. God's own household. And this is piggybacking on this phrase for household that's appeared three times in this chapter. In chapter 4, elders must manage their household well. Otherwise, verse 5, if he does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Deacons, likewise, must be the husband of one wife, verse 12, managing their children and their own households well. So this is the fourth time household has come up in this context. It just means family or extended family. That's what it means. So so the first picture for the church is as a family. In fact, that next blank, we are saved into a family. And I just want you to stop and think about this. It's it's a marvelous term, and we can take it for granted. We call each other brother or sister, morning brother. But, But the biblical imagery goes much further than that. We've seen already that the qualifications for leadership are precisely qualifications that make a man an excellent leader in the home. Because there's a lot of similarity. We, we said the church is a family of families. You know, just want you to stop and think. He, he could have called the church something else. And there are other metaphors for the church in Scripture, but he, does, he doesn't call the church God's own club, God's own team, God's own group, God's own friends. But he calls it a family. He calls it a household. And there are distinctions that... The household have that those other terms don't have. Yeah. You know, I think the most significant is the commitment to working through things, the commitment in family to we've got to find a way to love each other. We've got to find a way to get along together. We've got to find a way to work through things. Because you generally don't leave families when the going is tough. You you work through stuff, but you can leave clubs, groups, friends. But the church is a family. The church is a family. And turn to Ephesians 2. Um, this is a letter Paul previously wrote to the church at Ephesus. So, this reference saying the church as a family is nothing new to them. Um, likely, he taught it in the three years he was there, and he's already taught them this in Ephesians chapter 2. And again, this is, this is a bigger passage, but you've got to see the scope of what we are saved from and what we are saved to. We can so focus on the individualistic nature of salvation. And there is a truth there. Only I can believe for me. No one can believe for me by proxy. And so my standing with God, my justification, is a personal matter of my faith, my trust in Jesus Christ. Yet, what I am saved to is not an individual walk with Jesus, but I'm saved to the church, a family, the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, picking it up in verse 11. the Notice that what we are saved from and what we are saved to. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a pretty rough place to be. No hope, no God, no covenant, no people. Strangers and aliens. Then one of those wonderful but now statements in Scripture, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments... But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's own household. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You once were without a people, without a covenant, without a God, without a hope, without promises. And through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, you have been brought near. And now we are members of God's own household. You see what we've been saved to And so in the New Testament, it's unthinkable for a person to be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and not passionately concerned with the local church. Because that's what we're saved into. We're saved into the church. God's glory is displayed, and we're going to see in the next line as the church becomes the pillar and buttress for the truth. But we're saved into a family. And this is sort of the horizontal aspect of the church. If you're going to see the church rightly, you've got to see it horizontally and vertically. And so horizontally, we see our relationship to each other as family. Later in, in chapter 5, Paul's going to talk about addressing older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. It's all family categories. And, and so seeing this is important, especially when the going gets tough. You know, no one needs this encouragement when everything's going wonderfully, but we need to remember these truths when the going gets tough. There's there's an old verse. I don't know who wrote it, but it says, Oh, to be above with the saints I love, that would be glory. But down below with the saints I know, that's a different story. And it can sometimes sum up the reality. And so we've got to remember these truths that... Proper conduct relates to understanding ourselves as being part of a family. You know, different families have different sets of rules. You know, maybe in your family, um, you, could, you could not have to finish your food. In other families, you have to finish your food. Some, t- some families, the family eats together. Some families, they don't. Different families have different rules. Some families, you take your shoes off when you come inside. Others, you don't. Well, God's family has got an order to it. God's household has got some rules and some structure um, and, and yet there's, it's, it's loving relationships as well. So, we've seen some of the order and structure in God's household, but we've also seen the passionate love that Paul has for the church. So we've got to see the church horizontally as a family, but we also have to see it vertically as a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, without that second piece, it could just be a social club. It could just be um, a bunch of people who love each other getting together. But the church has a function. It's the pillar and buttress of the truth, he says. Now, this verse has caused some controversy because um, the Roman Catholic Church uses this verse um, to argue for the authority of church tradition and um, the the authority of the Pope. And their argument goes that Paul clearly states that the church supports. The truth, the truth rests upon the church, and that therefore the, the, the Bible really gets its authority from the church. And since the church authorizes the Bible, the church can also create traditions. And, and so that's their sort of reasoning. And so they end up with a threefold authority structure of the, the magisterium and the pope speaking, the traditions of the church, and scripture. And they largely base that off of this text. I think it's important to note the text does not say that the church is the foundation of the church of the truth. It says the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillars and buttresses are support structure. They're not foundations. They're not foundations. In fact speaking about this John Stott says um, the purpose of pillars is not only to hold the roof firm but to thrust it up high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance just so the church holds the truth aloft so that It is seen and admired by the world. Indeed, as pillars lift a building high while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. Thus, the truth that the church is a pillar of is not so much a doctrinal truth as a practical truth. Over against the Roman Catholic view that the church determines truth, the Bible teaches that the church displays truth. And those are the blanks. The church does not determine truth. We receive it from God. We don't determine it. We don't make truth. We recognize truth when we see it. But it displays the truth. The church does not determine truth, it displays the truth. And that's a really important distinction. We have the noble task of being support structure to help put the truth on display. The truth here is simply a summary of Christian truth. And more specifically, gospel truth, which is where we're going in verse 16. And so, yes, the church is a family, and being a family, it, it brings a certain conduct that is necessary, behooving us to conduct ourselves in a certain way as family. But we also have to keep in mind that vertical relationship of truth, that because of the function of the church as the support structure to put the truth on display, to support the truth when it's under attack, that also behooves us to act a certain way and say, okay, how do we function this way? Well, first, we function this way as a church. It doesn't say any individual Christian is a pillar in support of the truth, but local churches are. They are in the way that they proclaim it, in the way that they learn it and live it, the way that they memorize it, meditate on it, share it, speak it, study it, defend it when it comes under attack. There are many ways that we can function as a support structure for the truth. This is why later we're told in, in Peter to always be ready to give it a defense of the faith. Always be ready to be that pillar, that that buttress, that support structure that puts the truth on display for the world to see. This is a noble and high calling. The, The truth does not rest upon us. The foundation is not the church. The church is important support structure, but that is still a privileged position for us to be in. To hold up the truth. To support the truth when it comes under attack. To display the truth. That, that's what we're called to do, to proclaim the truth in evangelism. Teach the truth in disciple-making. Um, just about everything we have to do as the church centers around the truth. And so when you get those two axes, the horizontal family vision of the church and the vertical truth relationship, you're you're really in a position to understand how to act properly in the church. And I think the rest of this book of Timothy is going to sort of come into clear focus and make sense. Because just what everything Paul has to say falls upon one of those two axes. Interpersonal relations, gender relations, how to interact with widows and, and younger people and older people, and truth relations. Truth relations. That's that's the two axes in which this letter is written, and as Paul speaks of this truth, um, he can't help but move into almost this sort of uh, declaration of the truth. And verse sixteen, um, we see the church's faithful confession of the church, the faithful confession of the church. So we we've seen Paul's fierce concern. We've seen the need for fitting conduct. And now we're going to see a faithful confession. A faithful confession. Paul says in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Now, That word for confess is, is homo legamen, homo, same, logos, word, speech. And it means in the plural, great is our confession. And again, this is something an individual can't do confession is, is is a group speech confession is what a group of people say and one of the ways and at least in this context the primary way that the church functions as a pillar and support of the truth is by having a unanimous group confession over gospel truth that, that's where this is going that's sort of the flow of the argument the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed is our confession, our group amen to the following truth, and it's all gospel centered. So, one of the best ways that we can support the truth is by having a consensus amen, a unified voice to the gospel, what it is and what its truth contains. The mystery of godliness, we we saw this phrase last week, mystery in the Bible, in the New Testament here specifically, refers to something previously um, hidden now brought to light. And in our context, we're to see it's the mystery of the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and and justification by faith in His name. That's the mystery of godliness. Um, Before we dive into this mystery of godliness. I just want to draw your attention back to um, Acts 19. You you don't need to turn there. You're welcome to. But in Acts 19, there was another great confession that I think might still be ringing in the Apostle Paul's ears. I don't think it's for nothing that he uses this phrase. Um, And and in Acts 19, we see the founding, the planting of the church at Ephesus. And, And there was no small turmoil, no small hubbub as Paul planted the church. In fact, he encountered a lot of resistance. We're going to see a picture of that here. Acts 19, verse 28 and following. When they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd the disciples would not let him in. And even some of the Assyriarchs who were friends of his went to see him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another but the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward and Alexander motioned with his hand wanting to make a defense to the crowd. And when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See, when Paul planted the church at Ephesus, there was a confession of greatness. It rang for about two hours of a mob filling a theater. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I can just sort of picture the twinkle in Paul's eyes. He writes to Timothy, no, great is our confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. There's power in that. You can imagine being in that setting, in a theater, cram-packed with passionate, angry Jews and Gentiles, all with one voice yelling out, great is Artemis. And, And Paul just says that even greater, of more weight and significance, is our common confession. And you start to get the importance of why it matters that we have a common confession. That the world hears from us one voice, one common word, one clear gospel that goes out into the world and not confusion. These six lines are in poetic meter. Most of your Bibles probably put it that way back in uh, 1 Timothy 3. Um, it's, it's an early Christian hymn. It rhymes in Greek. It is meter in Greek. It's almost certainly a song. And, and from this we get the second half of our titles, Living and Singing in the Family of God. And so each line of the six lines focuses on deep gospel truth. This is what is the song on the lips of the church. This is what is filling their hearts. This is what they're passionate about. And we're going to dive in and, and take a look at that as it centers on the gospel. First line, he was manifested in the flesh. Now, absolutely certainly the he is a reference to Jesus Christ. In fact, all six of these lines focus on Jesus Um, he was manifested in the flesh and that speaks of the incarnation the the word I want you to put in the blank next to it is incarnation you see to properly understand the gospel you've got to start with the person of Jesus Christ Um, currently people have a harder time accepting the deity of Jesus than the humanity of Jesus many people today are quite happy to accept Jesus as a wise moral teacher But interestingly enough, in the first century, the difficulty was the exact opposite. Um, That the difficulty that the the earliest Christian heresies called Gnosticism after the Gnostics were the denial of the humanity of Jesus. Um, They had a hard time grasping how the eternal, perfect, immutable, unchanging Spirit God could truly become flesh, could truly Become human. I mean they could understand him looking human, appearing human, and acting human. But to really say that no, no, he he became and is still human. They stumbled over that. They stumbled over that. And and it is a great mystery. Philippians two, six to eight, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The mystery of godliness, our great gospel, starts with the eternal God, um, who was with God and was God and was at the Father's side, entered into our world. John 1:14 puts it this way: "The word became flesh and dwelt among us." This is a profound truth. It's what we celebrate every year at Christmas. The incarnation of the Son of God and just understand what a, what a big step down that was for Jesus it was such a big step down Paul in Philippians just simply says he became nothing because the comparison to the glory and honor and majesty and privilege that he had in heaven with God the Father to being born in a stable you might as well say he became nothing but that's how big the step down was he entered into our world. He entered into our existence. He entered into our suffering. God who had never felt pain, all of a sudden is exposed to the cold, expo- exposed to the sinfulness of this world. The eternal God who holds all things together with the power of his word is a helpless baby needing to be fed. That, that is a great mystery. The, the second line of this hymn, vindicated by the Spirit, The word I want you to put in the blank next to that is resurrection. Resurrection. So the first line, incarnation. Second line, resurrection. And and the concept of vindication or justification is is in regards to his claims to who he was. After all, Jesus makes some monumental claims. It's why you can't brush him off as a good leader, a good moral teacher. Any man who claimed the things that Jesus claimed, is either the real deal, or a megalomaniac? I mean, C.S. Lewis talked about you can neither of him as a liar, as a lunatic, or as Lord. But let us have none of this silly nonsense about him being a good teacher. And and so these claims to before Abraham was I am, taking on the divine name of God upon himself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but but my word will remain. Jesus had some amazing things to say. I and the Father are one. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, the life. Well, how do we know that those claims are true? Well, the Spirit vindicated Jesus' claims. He did it through his life, through the miracles. He did it at his baptism when the Spirit descended on him like a dove, but most notably, most conclusively, most finally, Jesus claims to sinless perfection and deity were vindicated when the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead after the crucifixion. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead it really becomes a truly unique claim if Jesus claims rested solely on his miracles while other people have done miracles Paul did miracles Peter did miracles but only Jesus was put to death and raised incorruptible from the grave and that is the ultimate vindication that because he was sinless the father was satisfied when he paid for our sins when he bore god's wrath on the cross god was satisfied the spirit raised him from the dead and vindicated his claims resurrection the resurrection is again a crucial doctrine of the gospel so we've got incarnation we've got resurrection next we have seen by angels now this phrase is a little tricky because the word angel is simply a transliteration of the greek "angelos." Just like last week, we saw that deacon is simply a transliteration, and transliteration is when you don't translate the word. You simply approximate it with your own letters, and you bring it across. We do that in English with lots of things. The Bible does it with a number of words. Baptize just means to dip or dunk, and it's the Greek word baptizo, and they just bring it across, baptize. And the word angel means messenger. And frequently, it means heavenly, spiritual messenger, what you and I call angels. It may very well mean that. If you take that meaning, that this is referring to spiritual angels, then seen by angels refers to the angels involved in Jesus' life. They announced his birth, they ministered to him during the 40 days in the wilderness, and they were the first people at the resurrection declaring the resurrection. Um, However, I tend to think this is more reference to the 500 plus messengers who saw the resurrection. just simply could be those messengers. Um, Either way, it's true, Jesus was seen by angels, Jesus was seen by over 500 witnesses who became gospel messengers, but in the flow of the song, I think it makes more sense to see it that way. This is the same way Paul develops his thought in 1 Corinthians 15, where he summarizes the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, I delivered to you as of first importance. But I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the Apostles. You see, in the day and age when Paul's living, there are many living witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. You see, we have to take it on the testimony of God's Word. They they could take it on the testimony of people you could sit down and talk to. And so I, I think that's what this is referencing. I couldn't die on that hill, but I think it's referencing those witnesses. And so the blank here, either way, is presentation. The Jesus resurrection wasn't done secretly in a corner somewhere. It's done publicly. It was seen. It was witnessed. When the Lord raised him from the dead by the power of his spirit... There were people there to see. Angels were present. Many witnesses were present. And so if you follow the flow of this, you've got the eternal God enfleshed himself and became human in the incarnation. And he died on a cross for our sins, bearing God's wrath for our sins, absorbing the guilt and the shame. And was raised three days later thus vindicating his claims at who he said he was, proving himself to be who he had said he was. And this resurrected Lord is seen by hundreds of people and angels, which then sets us up, point D, proclaimed among the nations. And you can write in the blank there, mission. See, because of the incarnation of the Son of God and because of his bearing of God's wrath for our sin on the cross and because of his resurrection and because of the certainty of these facts due to the many witnesses this message is to be proclaimed not just in Jerusalem not just in Israel but the whole world to all the nations and this, this is echoing back chapter 2 where prayers are made for all people because the gospel's for all people here proclaimed among the nations. This, this is reminiscent of the great commission. Go into all the world disciplizing the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I command you and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. This is the great mission of the church. These, these truths have implications and if points A, B, and C are true, then point D is a necessity. If the only living God has entered into space and time, has entered into humanity, and if he has lived a sinless life, and if he has died on a tree for our sins, and if he was raised from the dead, and if these facts are certain because many witnesses can testify to it, then we must tell the nations brings us to point E. It's believed on in the world. And and the blank you can put there is reception. And this is, of course, a critical point from our perspective. Up to this point, we've learned what has been done. And and this point, believed on in the world, begs the question, what is our response? The response to the world is faith. Not all the world, but wherever the gospel went, and as you read through the book of Acts, there's always a remnant. There's always a group of believers, even when Paul is stoned and driven out, even when they put Stephen to death. There's always a remnant, a holy remnant that believes, a people of faith. And so it's not that the whole world has believed, but everywhere the gospel goes in the world, there is faith. But of course, then that sort of begs the question about us. If this is our song, if this is our passion, We can't presuppose that everyone in this room has believed. And so I just want you to ask yourself, before you go declaring this to others, before you begin singing this as your song, have you believed? Believed on in the world. And that really is the hinge, because all that God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross will be of no benefit to you unless you unite yourself to him by faith all of who Jesus is and all he has done for us and his death and his life and his resurrection will be of naught and no effect to you unless it is united by faith to him. Unless you believe the word spoken and receive it by faith. And that's what's happened in the world. And as people believe, they are justified, they are forgiven, they are brought into God's family, into the church, into the people of God. But it's, but it's an important point we can't skip over. So I have to ask you to consider that. And finally, point F, taken up to glory. Taken up to glory. And this, this is the doctrine of glorification. And there's, there's sort of some parallels running through these six lines. Manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed in the nations. Believed on in the world. So in the world... Jesus has received some renown. Jesus has received some glory. Jesus has received some faith. And in heaven, he's received all glory. See, it's up above and down below. Down below, the message is going out. God is bringing to himself a peculiar people of faith. And up above, well, just turn to Philippians 2. We'll finish that passage and read about the exaltation of the Son of God sort of tying this sort of full circle from the incarnation to glorification in Philippians 2. We'll just pick it up in verse 5, rereading what we're looking at. And I'll ask the worship team to come up as we get ready to sing our final song. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, whether or not you believe now in Jesus, your tongue will confess one day. Every tongue on earth and in heaven and under the earth will give him glory. The invitation now is to do it willingly. God's invitation to us all now is that we would gladly confess. Some knees will bow because they're broken with a rod of iron on that day. The gospel invites those who would willingly do that now. So this is the song of the early church, and it should be our song. It's important that we take deep theology and put it to music. It's important that we sing truth to each other. It's important that these gospel truths roll off our lips. And in doing so, we function as that pillar and buttress of the truth. We declare it to the world. We put it on display. We protect it from attack. And so I think it's only fitting that we close our service this morning with a song that summarizes gospel truth. It's it's one we've added recently. It's called the gospel song. Please stand and sing.